Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for the message you've given us for this time in history. We ask that your spirit will join us, empower us, enlighten us, ennoble us, enable us to fulfill your purposes this time. Join us as we study. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson eight, God's mission, my mission, and the title is Mission to the Needy. And the memory text is from Matthew 25, 40, and it reads, The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This is from a parable. And the words are spoken to a certain group of people at a certain place in time in history. Do you know who the people are that will hear these words in the context of the parable? What what are the people, who are the people, and what, what place in time? Matthew 25, 31 to 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's when these words are spoken, as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it. This is the place in time when Jesus will actually speak these words out and people will hear them. Yeah. If this is if this is before the millennium, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have difficult to understand the timing of this because if it's after the millennium, all the righteous are going to be. This is before the millennium, second coming. So it's after the second. This, coming. this is what I understand it to be. The wicked, wicked living, righteous living. Yep. Right. This is my understanding. Separation. Okay. This is the harvest. This is when the, the wheat and the tares grow up together and he sends them to separate them, but you don't separate them till the harvest. The wheat and the tares together, the sheep and the goats together. Yeah. What determines, so, so this is the final conclusion of what determines who is saved and who is lost. That's what, what is, is being decided here or being announced here. Who is going to heaven, who's not going to heaven? There's the separation, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goat being separated, one group going to heaven, one group not going to heaven. And what did Jesus say in this story, this parable, separates those going to heaven, the sheep, from those not going to heaven, the goats? What is the separating element? How you treat others. How you treat others. And so Matthew 25, 34, and 36 to 36. Then the king said to those on, the, on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So the elements, if you were to describe these elements as as motivational, what's the underlying drive to these? Every element's an act of love, is it not? of beneficence, of caring for, of giving, of uplifting, of blessing another. Isn't, isn't this what he's describing? How we, as you said, how we treat other people. Did Jesus list any of the following as determining who's among the sheep and who's among the goats? You have the right method of ceremonial baptism. You partook in the right ceremonial communion wafer. You engaged in ceremonial foot washing before you took the ceremonial wafer. You didn't wear jewelry. You didn't eat flesh foods. You accepted the Seventh-day Sabbath and closed your business and started going to church on the Sabbath. You accepted the 28 fundamental beliefs and publicly made a declaration of me as your savior. You were a member of X denomination. Did he list any of these things? He must have been mistaken then. He clearly hadn't gone to Bible doctrines class. Why, why did Jesus list what Jesus listed? And why do so many Christians focus on things like ceremonies, doctrinal correctness, diet, dress, and organizational membership? Why did Jesus list what he listed? And why do so many Christians focus on these other things? Because Jesus was focused on the heart, and many organizations are focused on behavior. Well said, Eve. Did you hear that? Jesus is focused on the heart. 
And systems are focused on external behavior. Well, it sounds like a Bible text. Man looks on the outward appearance and the Lord looks on the heart. Can every one of the items that I listed, the ceremonies and so forth and Sabbath behaviors and so forth, can every one of those items be done from fear and selfishness? Mm-hmm. Without being reborn without a heart that actually loves God or loves others. Can you do all those things? Didn't the Jews who crucified Christ basically do all those things? But do people genuinely sacrifice their time, their energy, their resources for others if they don't have love in their heart? No. They might appear to on the outside, but they're actually not sacrificing. They're investing to get some return. Now that happens, and it can look like they're sacrificing, but they're not. True sacrifice is not what we can get out of it. It's what we can do for the other. Again, Jesus reveals God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth, love, and freedom built by God upon functional, operational design laws, how things actually work and live and breathe and function. God does not run his kingdom like a dictator runs Rome. He does not function like a creature with made-up rules and inflicting punishments. But because Christianity became Romanized when it accepted the Roman version of law, almost all Christianity teaches that God's law is imposed and God's justice is legal and it's legally enforced and he uses external power to punish sinners and salvation is legal adjustment through external application of some blood payment to an account in heaven that we participate through by faith, by a faith claim. I claim by faith the payment But then we must start rule-keeping. Once we get that for past stuff, we have to start rule-keeping. Because we also know that he has an angel following us everywhere to keep track of all the mistakes and write him down in the books. And if you don't get the payment made to each mistake, each deed, then that deed remains in the books and and justice requires you be punished for it. And then we go into division and argument over... Well, which laws are still on the books? And which laws have been rescinded, amended, overruled, and changed in Christianity fragments? Well, that one's no longer required. It was done with at the cross. And it's a sad state of affairs because currently the Christian world is divided into 41,000 different groups, all claiming the Bible supports their beliefs and all arguing whether this is enforced. Or, yes, we all believe it, this is to, but you don't do it that way. The Bible says you do it this way. Well, this dress is allowed, that dress is not allowed. You know I've actually gotten emails over the years. Emails over the years. Why do I wear a wedding ring? <laughs> no, I have. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> but when Jesus comes back, he said there'll be two groups. Not 41,000 groups. Two groups. The sheep and the goats. And all the saved are among the sheep. And all the sheep will not be from one earthly denomination. All the sheep, when Jesus comes, will not have participated in communion in the same way. Will not have all been baptized in the same way. Will not have all dressed in the same way. Or have eaten the same diet. Or gone to church on the same day. But they will all have been reborn to live out God's law of truth, love, and freedom and how they treat others. Yes or no? So Jesus said, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you, within you. I'm suggesting that Satan's true end time deception is not about wrong doctrine. It isn't getting Christians to adopt false methods and principles in how they treat other people, regardless of the doctrine. In fact, even when the doctrine is the right doctrine, he can get more advance of his kingdom by getting you to advance the right doctrine with the wrong methods, like the Jews who crucified Christ. The primary issue they had with Christ was not that he had a different Sabbath or a different Bible or different feast days or a different diet or a different dress code. What was different was the methods he practiced and how he treated others. He didn't discriminate. He loved all people. 
He ministered and healed people regardless of their status in society. He socialized with people regardless of their status in society. But those who accept the Roman view of law, power over, they believe they're driven by fear and they believe right is might and therefore law and enforcement and pressuring, coercing people to conform to your view of what's right. And Jesus was not conforming. His followers were harvesting wheat on Sabbath. He was working to heal people on Sabbath. He forgave people who God had cursed with sickness. He was a clear blasphemer, rule breaker, heretic, lawbreaker, and justice demanded he be punished. And so what did they say? It is better for one man to die for the people than for the nation to perish. The ends justify the means. The Jews who rejected Christ did not do so because of disagreement over a list of doctrines. They did so because they hated his methods of truth, love, and freedom. They hated his compassion, his grace, his forgiving of sinners, his healing the unclean, his method of Sabbath observance. They hated his shift away from behavior to heart transformation. And as we approach the second coming of Christ, Satan is not limit, does not limit his attacks to doctrinal attacks. It won't be a question of what day you go to church on in the end. The final test will be about whether we maintain loyalty to Jesus by being like Jesus in the methods we practice over ourselves in how we treat other people. What method do we use in governing ourselves when we deal with other people? Truth, love, and freedom? Or we know better for what their life. We don't let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, as Paul wrote in 14, uh, Romans 14, 5. No, we know that they're ignorant. We know that they're not educated. We know they don't have the, the spirit of prophecy's books to enlighten them at this time in history. So we know that we should pressure and coerce and, 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 because we know it's better because we're just trying to save lives. It's not. It's not better, is it? Are we the type of people who, while claiming to be followers of Jesus, would use the power and position, our, our power and position, the methods of the state, what the Bible describes as beastly systems, we use those methods while we claim to be followers of Jesus in order to advance what we believe is the truth, even if it were to save lives. Better, better for one to die for the nation. We're saving the, I mean, I mean we, we are the Jewish leadership. That God has blessed us. We know, we see all the, all the Old Testament prophets that told us we have a mission for God. We're on a mission for God. We can't let the last two tribes be destroyed with the 10. We have a mission for God. We have to do this to protect the mission God has given us, don't we? It's better for one man to die than for God's mission, for his people, for the nation to be destroyed. We're saving lives, not just our lives, but the, but the mission for, for, for salvation to the world. Isn't it better for a few healthy, asymptomatic employees to be forced to take a medicine they don't want than for the business to be fine, closed, and, and, and shut down? Because we certainly couldn't help people anymore if that happened. We, it's better. It's better. Whose methods are we practicing? Whose kingdom advancing? And one of the traps is to get a good goal, a good goal. And let's, let's be very clear. It is a good goal to save lives. It's a good goal. And if he can get you focused on the goal while ignoring the methods, it's a trap. How do we advance the goal? Only by advancing the methods. And so I've said it before, we cannot advance God's kingdom by using Satan's methods. We can't do it. And so Paul wrote in Romans 14, excuse me, Romans 12, 14, 20, and 21, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is not the method of the world. If someone does you wrong, you don't seek to bless. You don't seek to bless those who curse. The world seeks to. What's happening in the Middle East today? Do you see either side, either side, you pick your side, either side being wronged? You see wrongs happening to people on either side. 
And do you see either side blessing those who persecute them? Seeking to feed them, to uplift them. Or do you see both sides seeking the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 43 to 48, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Pause right there. What law does that operate on? Rising sun, rain. These are design laws. He's the creator. His laws, his method, his, they're sustaining everything. They don't change based on righteous and unrighteousness. They continue to operate. The righteous and the unrighteous, they change based on their choices of harmony or, or breaching God's design laws, but the laws don't change. They treat everyone the same. If you love those who love, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your father, heavenly father is perfect. Perfect? Perfect love, perfect trust, not perfect performance. That you've come to like Job, who's perfect and righteous in all his ways. And even though he had questions, he didn't know what was going on. He had a bone to pick with God, but he knew that if he could have a conversation with God, it'd work out. His faith, his confidence was not shaken. He knew God had the answers. He knew God, he said, and we can come to the point, even if God were the one to slay me, yet will I trust him. He cannot be shaken. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the apostles who died as martyrs and the martyrs through history, these had all come to the point that their faith and trust in God was unshakable. That's a perfect person. Their hearts have been sealed or settled into loyalty to their creator. So when we're wronged, the point I'm making, when we're wronged, we have to decide how will, how will we respond? Whose methods, law, principles will we apply to ourselves? And I can tell you, I've been wronged in this world and I've wronged people in this world. I've done both. Been on both sides. And when I've been wronged, I've had feelings to retaliate. Sometimes I have retaliated. And at those times in my life, sometimes it felt good. Yeah, they got what they deserved. <laughs> but I didn't get good. And it was later when things wronged me that I still wondered how, that I, I, I fell on my knees and I prayed. Lord, I, I know I'm supposed to love these people. I don't love them. I want to smack them. But I need to love them. They need your change. And I had to pray, give me the Give me the loving response, even though right now I don't feel like loving them. What's the loving response? And I noticed in that process, it was, it was a battle for me. It wasn't easy. And in that process, which wasn't a moment, it was a process, because I, I, I was tempted. I had neural pathways of, of uh, self-justification, retaliation. And in that process, though, I, I experienced more joy and more peace less frustration, less anger. I was happier. Didn't change the people. Many of those people are still saying and doing ugly things to me and my reputation in the community. But I leave them free. That's on them, not on me. And I don't get in the mud and sling mud. I used to. Some of you probably remember that. So we have to decide when people wrong us, how we respond, what methods, who, who's do we apply? And as I said, you're looking around the world, you see various groups applying the methods of the world. And what happens to people who do this? They actually don't get more peace, even if they win. Even if they win a battle, they win a situation, they get uh, somebody driven out of their territory or whatever, they don't live with more peace, they live with more fear. They have to spend more on defense, more on monitoring, more on spies, more on this, more on that. And it's constant fear, fear of retaliation, fear of being found out, fear of being overthrown, fear of somebody with more power coming along, kicking you out, fear of some secret bomb going off somewhere. It's fear. They live in fear. There's no, there's no joy in that. There's no happiness in that. That's what the world gives, more and more fear. You might get more power, but the more power you get, you have more fear. You have more fear of somebody stealing it, somebody ruining it, the stock market crashing, so what happens to our characters if we choose to accept Christ, reject the fear and survival drives, and embrace his methods and trust him with how it turns out? Lord, I'm going to trust you 
I'm going, to have, I'm going to choose to do what I understand is right. I'm going to trust you with how it turns out. Does that mean it always turns out good in an earthly way? How did it turn out for Stephen? Now, we get to heaven to meet Stephen. And t- just let, go down that trail. You get to meet Stephen, have a conversation. You, get, you can read a sermon in Acts. It's an incredible sermon. Isn't it an incredible sermon? Powerful stuff, man. And you get to read that. And after his sermon, he was greeted by a group of people with stones. When you meet him in heaven, what do you think he'll say? Boy, wish I could do that one over. <laughs> do you think he'll have regrets? As far as we know, Stephen's incident there might have been part of, part of Saul's conversion process. Hmm. There is evidence to support that. Thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Stephen's sermon, Paul was holding the coats for them. Yeah. Paul's conscience was eating at him that the Lord talked about on the Damascus Road. And it's inferred that this is probably what was going on. How could somebody who was so gracious, and, and of course, what was Stephen's comment before he dies? He sees, of course, he opens, heaven is open and he sees, but he makes a comment. Father, don't hold this against their account. Don't lay this against their account. That got Paul. Wasn't just the stoning. He'd seen probably stonings more than once in his life in that culture. Don't you think? Yeah. But that got him. He saw, uh, I'm going to suggest even, that to a small degree, there might have been a little bit of of radiance coming from Stephen's face, a little bit like Moses on the mountain, as heaven was open before him. Didn't it say his face lighted like an angel in the, in the text? Yeah. Yes, it does say it in the text. So he saw something there that was radiant and beautiful and was inconsistent with the hate and ugliness of this world, and it aided him. But when we get to heaven, do you think Stephen will go, boy, I blew that one. Or is he going to look back on that and go, thank you, God, for the privilege. I trusted you with the outcome, and it worked out perfectly. I don't think he regretted it even in the moment. Right. It worked. This is my point. Yeah. When you trust the Lord with the outcome, sometimes you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you get the fiery furnace delivery, or Daniel and the lions. But sometimes you're Stephen. Sunday's lesson focuses our attention on the story of friends bringing the paralytic man to Jesus and lowering him down through the roof. And the second paragraph reads, by bringing their friend to Jesus, these men took took on the responsibility to care for him. God is calling us to be like this man's friends, to lead the needy to Jesus Christ. This work requires faith, action, patience, and a willingness, if 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 need be, to be unconventional. The men came to Jesus but encountered barriers. They could not bring their helpless friend to Jesus through traditional means. They did not give up. Instead, they found an innovative way to get the man to Jesus Christ, dropping their friend down from the roof. Yet according to Luke, Jesus approved of what they did. Uh, first sentence, I just, I, I me, help me. I just did not know what that first, first sentence meant. As I read that, it, it's like, I'm, I'm still scratching my head over that first sentence. Uh, by bringing their friend to Jesus, these men took on the responsibility to care for him. Did it, it, it mean simply they took on the responsibility to bring him to Jesus? Or by bringing him to Jesus, they now took the responsibility to care for him the rest of his life. They're his caregivers now. So if you give somebody who is, you know, wheelchair bound a ride to the doctor, you now have to care for them. You've taken on the responsibility to care for them. I thought more is saying they took it upon themselves to care about this person enough to do this for them. Yeah, okay. So I like that. It just, I think maybe my brain is reading or it's maybe it's not the most ideally constructed sentence. Um, I have to admit that most times they talk about this story, it kind of irks me because I think the guy wanted to go. They leave his faith out and he's the one who was constantly lying down. He's the one who was constantly looking at roofs and it was probably his idea. Oh, nice. To go through the roof. Oh, nice. And then they carried it out. Yeah, yeah. You don't see him like kicking and screaming and say, don't take me, don't take me, but I can't help it. Leave me here. Yeah, that's good. Yes? I just said yeah. fear of heights. Yeah, fear of heights. <laughs> <laughs> you leave me on the ground. I'm scared. Yeah, it's good. So anyway, I think it means that they took responsibility. To care, they cared enough about him that they acted on it to get him the help he needed in that circumstance. That's, that's what I think. It just The sentence was just... Not 
jiving in my head. One of the things that struck me about that story was Christ didn't mind getting dirty to help somebody. You mean the dust floating down on him? Oh, yeah. I don't know the roof that's going to be dirty. Yeah, yeah. And he's right there in front of it. You think this is an old tile roof, probably. So we have a responsibility to share Jesus with people, to creatively do things, to place the gospel, the truth about Jesus within reach of people, and to invite people to meet and know Jesus by sharing our experience with, with, uh, of Jesus with, with others. What have you found to be effective in doing that? Live like Jesus is inside you. <laughs> okay. So that they see him instead of you. And because you're so different than what they normally experience, it stands out to them. And I've heard many stories like this. And sometimes I've heard it where they've had direct conversations. I've actually heard stories where your witness impacts somebody, but they don't tell you. I've heard people tell me, I saw somebody else and, and that inspired me, and, but they never had a conversation with the person. Have you heard these stories? Yeah. I remember some years, a decade or more after I went to med school, when I was in med school in Memphis, I belonged to a local church there. And and you, you may know that in med school that you have long hours. And ba- this, was, this was back in the day when they, they put the doctors through the grind. They, they actually limit the number of hours the med students are on call and stuff. But, but we were, during my surgical rotation, we would be at the hospital. Now, every third night call, and you'd be up 24, 36 straight hours with no sleep um, because, the, because you're changing dressings and doing all this stuff. And, and uh, it, it was quite, quite a grueling experience during these, uh, these rotations. But I, if, if I wasn't actually at the hospital, I might have gotten off at 7 o'clock on Sabbath morning. I, I went to church. And I, and I went to church every week that I wasn't actually in the physical hospital, regardless if I'd been up all night. And about 10 years later, I met a young man who was a actual probably 8, 10, 11, 12 years old when I was going to, to med school. And, uh, and he told me that seeing me in church, knowing how tired I was, inspired him and, and in his personal journey and his faithfulness in staying with the Lord. So I, I thought that was interest, uh, interesting and affirming. I, I, I had no idea that that happened. Yeah, but I think these are the witnesses sometimes we give. Helen White says, part of the joy of heaven will be to find out the ripples of what we've done. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's right. Third paragraph says, Jesus' desire is for us to bring our helpless friends to him. The Bible refers to Jesus as the great physician who longs to forgive and heal those who are suffering, whoever they are. Absolutely. I, again, didn't like the sentence structure here either. (laughs) He longs to forgive and heal. That's true. Does Jesus only long to forgive or does he actually forgive? Does he only forgive, only forgive those who come to him? Did he forgive those who crucified him? But did he heal them? There's a disconnect between his forgiving and his healing, and they linked them. He forgives everyone. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The forgiveness was already there, but the healing requires our participation. Forgiveness comes from God. Healing requires our participation. So God forgives them, but they didn't receive it. They didn't accept the forgiveness. They were not changed by God's love, grace, etc., etc. Yes, Linda. Don't you find that a disconnect today, too? I can't, I can't tell you how many Christians are just relieved to be forgiven. They yeah. think, I've been forgiven. I'm that's, good. That's right. I'm, I'm saved. I'll be always saved because I've, I've confessed and I've forgiven. And they don't embrace or even understand the healing part. Do you know why? It's the root thing that we have been hammering for years in this class. The laws. Which law do you hold? They're, they're, the reason they have joy over being forgiven, it, it tells you, without the actual healing, that they, they've diagnosed the sin problem as legal. They're in legal trouble for bad deeds, and they're going to be held accountable, and it's on their registry. But if they're forgiven, they're free from the, from the, the, the punishment of sin. Jesus has taken their punishment, and oh, whoa, what joy we have in our hearts, because the punishment has been paid by Christ, and they're forgiven. And that's the pagan view. Yes. 
Didn't he say by his stripes we are healed? Yes, by his stripes we are healed, not by his stripes we are forgiven. Right. Healed, regenerated, cleansed. By his stripes, he procures the cure that we participate on. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We actually become partakers of the divine nature. We get a new heart and right spirit. The law is written in our hearts. You notice it doesn't say, by his stripes, there's a payment of blood made to the books in heaven, and the law is written on the books in heaven under the registry of our social security number. And, uh, and, and uh, we get declared to be righteous, even though we remain unrighteous. Under. It doesn't say any of that. All of the things of Scripture are transformational, regenerational, recreational. By his stripes, we are healed. Exactly. And do you think that's why there's kind of a, a disconnect and a divide as far as what people think grace is? You know, one side thinks yes. grace is just an attitude, and then the truth is grace is actually God's power working in us to heal us. Exactly. And this all, again, it all roots back in the question. If, you, if your premise, you approach the world, the Bible, scripture, doctrine, theology, and the premise, the filters, the lenses you look through are God's law functions like human law. If that's the lens, that's the assumption, then right and wrong is defined by behavior, rule breaking, law breaking. And the problem is the one in charge has to have accountability because if he doesn't hold accountable, there's chaos and God's a God of order. He's not going to have chaos. If, if he doesn't hold accountable, if he doesn't punish, then everybody gets away with everything. He can't do that. That's, that would be unrighteous. That would be unjust. So God has to use power to police, and he has to have angels follow and keep an accurate record of all the bad stuff you've done. And somebody has to pay the penalty. Well, who's going to pay the penalty? Well, we, 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 we certainly owe it because we've done bad stuff. We're guilty, so, so we deserve it. But he loved us too much, so he sent Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, and he behaved perfectly, and he kept all the rules. And then all of the bad stuff that everybody's ever done, past, present, and future, was all put on Jesus, and God punished him in our place. Then why do we need to be born again? <laughs> if it's just a matter of being forgiven for a broken law, you know, and there's no need for transfer transformation. Well, the born again would be, you're born again to accept the legal payment. If, you don't, if you're not born again, you won't accept it. So you have to have the heart willing to accept, and that's what born again is, a heart willing to accept the payment. Before then, you don't even think you need a payment. You're so good in your own righteousness, or, or you don't even believe in God. So the born again is to be converted to the idea that you're a sinner, and converted to the idea that Jesus paid the penalty, and you're born again into a new worldview that accepts the penalty paid by Jesus. Your heart isn't actually changed. You're still a sinner. But now all your sins are covered by his blood, and you get to sin under the blood instead of sinning out, out on your own. And that's the definition of being born again. Yes, it is. That's exactly functionally what they describe. Being born again is to now sin under the blood, under the grace, under the payment. All sins, past, present, and future, put on Christ and paid. Now, if you have the once saved, always saved, you can't even be lost now, even no matter what you do. And if you have the Adventist version, yes, your, your sins are under the blood, but you still have to go and confess them or else they remain on the books. It's corrupt. It's all pagan, guys. It's pagan. It's, it has a God who is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death rather than God who's the source of life. And as the Bible teaches, what does the Bible teach? Where does death originate? And, and if you go with scripture. He was a murderer from the beginning. Satan is the murderer from the beginning. So death comes from Satan. Uh, who holds the power of death according to scripture? Jesus took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Right. Devil holds the power of death, okay? Jesus holds the power of of the keys to Hades in the grave. He, over, he overcame death and he came that he might, he came to destroy his whole power of death, but he also came to destroy death and bring life and immortality to life. 2 Timothy 1.10. So death comes from Satan, comes from sin, and it says the wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Scripture is very clear. Death does not come from God. He's the source of life. Death comes from the actions we choose to sever our connection from the source of life. Those are called sin. And refuse the reconciliation of being restored to the source of life. And thus we cut ourselves off from life and we die. That's what sin does. And Satan's lies about God cause us to break that trust, disconnect ourselves from the source of life, and we die. So death comes from sin and severing from the source of life. And almost all Christianity teaches that God is the source of death inflicted for breaking his rules because he's angry and wrathful and somebody needs to take his wrath. It's really corrupt. 
Yes. Uh, instead of wanting to hold them accountable, shouldn't we be praying they know God and they get to know Him? Mm-hmm. Praying for His Spirit. That's eternal. Absolutely. And Tim? Yes. When people ask me about this ministry, how it's different, I, ch- I say, well, I, I believe the core of it is that he is, Tim is trying to move the spiritual scenario out of the courtroom and into the hospital. And as a nurse, I have, I have gone behind many, many people and written down everything about them in charts. Yes, I'm like the angel. <laughs> Follow me along, writing every... You are an angel, Linda. <laughs> Not yet. Um, in any event, and I go along and I record everything exactly as I see it. But why do I do that? So that you, as the doctor, can come in and, and see the scenario and know how to heal that person based on the scenario I present to you. Well, yeah, well said. And that's how the, we should understand the heavenly records are like medical records. They document the pathology, and they will also document for those who accept it, the remedy, and they will also document the cancer or disease has gone into remission, but they will also document, if people refuse it, that, that the, the negative outcome in the death is not because the doctors killed the patient, but the patient refused the remedy. And so the records will ultimately exonerate God of providing everything to cure, but the people die because they won't accept him curing their life. So it's, it's exactly right. Yes. So one does by, by his stripes we are healed. What does that entail? So that, that's what we describe as the atonement. Why did Jesus have to die? Okay, why did Jesus have to come and suffer? If, if you had a, 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 as a metaphor, and then I can explain in detail, as a metaphor, if you had a child dying of renal failure, and you donate a kidney to save their life, we could say, by your surgical scars, your, your child was healed. What does that mean? Why do you have to have surgical scars? Because it was necessary for you to give the kidney in order for that child to have a functional kidney and survive. And so the stripes or the suffering you went through was the necessary process of what the laws of health required for life to occur. There was no kidney paid to a ruling magistrate. It was given in love to the child because without it, they will die. And so we needed something that we could not procure for ourselves that without it would result in our death. And the two things, and this is the ransom. What was the ransom that was paid? Well, what is it? A ransom is the price paid that sets one free. What is it that holds us in bondage? Two things. The lies about God that we believe keep our minds distrusting him. We're held hostage by the lies. And so Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So one element that was paid and was revealed when he was striped or beaten or crucified and all power was in his hands. John chapter, was it 13? All power is given to Christ and all power is in his hands. I can call 12, 12 legions of angels down, but all power, and he's being persecuted, what do, we, what do we learn? Father, forgive them. He won't use power to protect self. He never uses power selfishly. We can trust the one with power because he will never abuse us with the power. Unlike all of us, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not Christ. So first truth, God is trustworthy with the power. Jesus revealed it. We can trust him. The lies that Satan said, are, are dispelled. God doesn't use power to punish wrongdoers. Christ proves it at the cross. But that's not the only thing that holds us in bondage. We're also held in bondage by our own carnal nature, our own fear, self-centeredness, survival drives. We need a new heart and right spirit. A new human nature, new human character. No human since Adam and Eve could develop a perfectly sinless, righteous, mature human character. So Jesus took up humanity damaged by Adam and developed a perfect, righteous human character, Hebrews 5.9. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. God cannot create character. God can create sinless beings, angels, Adam and Eve. Character is developed by the choices of the being. And Adam and Eve corrupted their character. Lucifer and a third of the angels corrupted their character. Jesus, as a human being, using human abilities, trusting in his father as a human being, developed a perfectly righteous, sinless human character, restoring God's living laws, the operating method of his humanity, 
and thus he became the new head of humanity, opening a new door for all who are one to trust by the truth to receive from him via the Holy Spirit a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And so what we find, the stripes are the path he had to go through as a human to reveal the truth and to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness, the carnal nature, and rise in a perfected humanity. And that's what heals us. So this is not for physical healing? This is not for physical healing. We, we are not promised physical healing on this earth. Oh no. In fact, we are, we, what, when I tell my patients this all the time, I have many patients with various illnesses. What we are promised on this earth is a new heart and right spirit, spiritual healing. Your guilt, shame, self-centered control, fear, domination can be taken away and you can become a faithful, loyal, kind, selfless, Christ-like human being. But we are not promised a new physiology until the mortal puts on immortality and the corruption puts on incorruption at the second coming. And all the righteous, no matter how righteous they are, their bodies are decaying with age. Even if there's no overt diagnosed sickness or disease, the body is decaying with age. And it's not until, so we don't get new physiology now. We get new hearts, right spirits, new characters now. But your thinking can affect your physiology. That's true, it can. But even if, so yes, this is absolutely true. So healthy lifestyle, healthy lifestyle choices and substances we eat, exercise, diet, sleep, and also the God we worship. My, my book, The God-Shaped Brain, documents this. The belief systems you hold will either activate stress circuits, which will increase inflammatory cascades, which will accelerate aging, or they'll activate love circuits, which calm that, which allow you to age more gently. But even if you have the most perfectly harmonious, godlike experience today, your body is still aging. You're not going to prevent that at this point because we're in a fallen, corrupt physiology at this point. But when Jesus comes, I'm very happy to know I'm getting a hardware upgrade. <laughs> Aren't you all? Yeah. Yes. Only software upgrades available right now. Software upgrades available now. That's exactly right. You can upgrade your, your thinking patterns, your motives, your heart, your desires, your connections, how you process. Do you reprocess and, and respond? And sheep and goat. Do you treat people with the message of Christ or the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality? You can change that now through God's grace. Yes. We don't believe in healing. I mean, because James 5, 16 says, confess your thoughts one to another, pray for another that you may be healed because of the factual person. So Jesus healed many people. In fact, we, we, we just read about one, the paralytic. Where's the paralytic today? Dead. That's but, but, but we don't believe in healing? He's healed. What happened to him? He aged and died. The healing that happens when we have miraculous healing today is not the new, the, the glorified body. I don't know anybody who's got a glorified body on the earth. Even if somebody has a miraculous healing today, it's still in a body that's aging and dying. And they're still going to die at age 80, 90, 100, 105, 111, something like that. They're still going to die until glorification. That's when we get immort immortality when there's physiological immortality at the, at the second coming. Oh, healings happen for sure in fallen bodies. And you see lots of these healings. The blind man that got healed by Jesus, the deaf person, the lepers that got healed, all these people that healed, where are they today? They're in the grave. Their bodies decayed and died. Did that mean they weren't healed? No, they were healed from those conditions still in a fallen body. So don't confuse healing physical conditions with receiving glorification in the glorified body. They're not the same. Monday's lesson focuses on the methods Jesus uh, used in reaching people and highlights four steps. He mingled, social, mingled, socialized, and or got out with people. That's one step. He showed sympathy. He ministered to their needs, and he won their confidence. And these, met, these are well-proven steps. We even taught these in different terms in medical school. Uh, it's hard to help people that you never connect with in some way. So that's obviously we got to connect with people. And we're taught to build, in, me in medical school, we're taught to build rapport. Rapport is a positive relational connection where trust is built and they have confidence in you as the provider to build that rapport. Show them sympathy, minister to their needs, be trustworthy and honest in your dealings, build the rapport by doing all of these things. It's well documented. But is it, so all, so all of this is absolutely important to, to be able to help people. The question I have is, if you have all these things, you mingle with people, you show them sympathy, you do things that are actually ministering to basic needs, food, 
or whatever it might be. You win their confidence because your heart is for them. If you have all those things, does that mean you will actually be able to help them? No. What, what, there's, a, there's a key element missing here. You can have all those things and actually harm people. What's missing? What's, what's missing if you're actually, that Christ had, that's why he was able to help people if they don't mention it. The truth. You actually have to know what's wrong. And you actually have to have a solution that helps the problem. If you have all this compassion, this sympathy, you're mixing with people, you've won their trust, but you don't know what's wrong with them and you don't know how to help it, you may actually make things worse. So the doctors who treated George Washington for his, his pneumonia bled him and leached him. Yeah. And he trusted them. Yeah. Because they cared for him and he had sympathy for him and they, and they wanted to help him and, and they mingled and they were there. But they didn't understand what was wrong. They didn't understand microorganisms and, and bacterial infections. And they didn't uh, have a treatment that would help. And so they actually intervened to make it worse. I want to say something about the temporary healing that he was mentioning, the, te the healing that goes on. I think a lot of the times, being that I've cared for a lot of sick people, a lot of times people are too sick to have a clear relationship with God. They're just feeling too bad. And sometimes their faith gets weak and so on. And so I think what we think is miraculous healing is really an effort on God's part to enable them to interact with him in a healthy way mentally. If it's necessary, I will tell you in my experience, and I've written about this with many examples in one of my books. I can't remember the God-shaped part of the God-shaped brain. I can't remember which, which book this went in. But miracles of healing are almost always for the weak in faith, not for the strong in faith. Almost always. Through the strong in faith, for the weak in faith. And if you look at Bible miracles, Gideon had miracles of a fleece. Were those miracles sent because he already had really strong faith or because he had faith, but it was weak and needed reinforcing? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego had an incredible miracle that saved their life. But was the miracle for them? In fact, you read in the text, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, oh, great king, we know that our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. Their faith was of an order that they didn't need that miracle. That miracle was not for them. They benefited from it, to be sure, but it wasn't given for them. It was given for Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of us who've read the story. And if you read down through history, you will find this happening most of the time. The strong in faith. Um, think about the apostles. How many died as, as, as martyrs? They weren't delivered like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, except John, who the stories say was thrown in boiling oil and God delivered him because John would have failed if he didn't or because God had a purpose for him still that needed to be carried out on the Isle of Patmos and writing the book of Revelation. So God intervened in that case, but it still wasn't for John. It was for the mission. It was for us. It was for you. We've benefited from that miracle more than John did. John was isolated for years alone on an island. That wasn't a joyful experience, I'll tell you. One of the worst things you can do for somebody is put them in solitary confinement. And so when it comes to miracles of healing, yes, they happen. But most of the time, the strong in faith don't need a miracle to stay faithful. They will say, Lord, I'd love a miracle. I'd love to stay active. I'd love to, I'd love to continue on the mission that, that you've allowed me to participate in. But Lord, I trust you with the outcome here. It's not necessary. My faith isn't going to be shaken. I'll, I'm like Job. You've brought me to that point in our journey. I trust you so much that even if you were the one to slay me, I would still trust you. I don't need a miracle. But the weak in faith will often say, Lord, if you don't perform a miracle, I'm not going to speak to you anymore. So when we talk about this sympathy and empathy and showing concern, building rapport, on a purely emotional level, there is a benefit. To, it can help someone to know that somebody else cares. When they feel they're not alone, when they feel human compassion, when they feel a connection to somebody, that actually has an emotional, psychological benefit to calm the fear circuitry, and that can have a benefit. So, so that alone, just connecting and caring and let people know that they're valued as a human being, that can actually have a healing benefit on people alone without actually doing anything more, without being a medicine involved or doing a surgery or doing anything else. Genuine caring for people is, is measurable. And so I, wanna, I don't want to discount that. But without, the, without possessing an administering truth, people with great compassion, empathy, and sympathy can actually take specific actions that cause harm, as the example that I gave a moment ago. So we need to, to love people, but we need to love people uh, 
in a way that that is knowledgeable and understanding to the best we can. And that's, that's, and we become more effective as we understand God's design laws. You might call them the laws of health. The principles that, not just the physical laws of health, but the laws that govern mental health and relational health. And when you see people in violation, you know they're not in legal trouble, they're hurting themselves in some way. And I give lots of examples. I will tell you, I've talked to some, some church leaders who absolutely endorse the design laws regarding the physical world. They know the law of phys- laws of physics and gravity and the laws of health. These are physical laws and they're God's design laws and they, and they accept them as, as design laws. But they will turn right around and say, but the moral code of the Ten Commandments is imposed. There's a set of rules that got us to police and enforce. They'll turn right around and say that. And it shows how they don't really understand reality. You see, one of the commandments has to do with cheating. You can't help but cheat. Whether it's a patient who you give a medicine to who cheats and say they took it when they didn't, or who goes to physical therapy after an injury and cheats and has their brother do their exercises for him. (laughs) You can't help but cheat if you're cheating. And what happens inside a cheat? Whether they're cheating on their spouse or cheating from their employer or cheating at school, if you cheat, what happens inside you? Inside you, you have more fear. You have more anxiety. You're afraid you're going to get found out. You begin, in order to avoid the guilt and shame that cheating causes, you begin to rationalize and justify and tell stories about your, uh, to yourself, your, your, your mental faculties, until there's repentance and a rebirth and you, the cheat becomes an honest and loyal and faithful person, then new pathways grow and transformation happens and health and peace comes. I mean, this, there is no externally inflicted punishment for the person who cheats on their taxes or cheat, well, from the state there might be, but not from God. Or cheats their employer from the state there might be, but not from God. There is a punishment that happens in the soul that can never be avoided. It's what sin does to the sinner. And you can't ever escape it. That's design law. You can only be healed from it through God's grace. New motives and new desires. Oh, let's see if there's any other fun points. Any questions from the lesson? Because we're winding down really fast and we're just kind of skipping some Monday, moving into Tuesday. What do we, more, what do we uh, measure our standards by? What do we measure our standards by? What would you think? What is the standard for life? For God's government and kingdom. What's his government built upon? Love. Okay, love is, that's right, 100%. And truth, because, because genuine love is not deceitful, it's truthful. But truth and love, and you can call them, these are laws, they're design protocols, they're not just, love is not just compassion or empathy. Love is functional, it's operational, it's a design, it's how things work, it's how life is built. And so, it's truth, love, and love always works in freedom. These are the big principles. Any violations of these, unless the commandments are simply a codification of God's law of love written for sinful human beings, and the Ten Commandments did not exist in eternity past. In fact, they didn't exist until Sinai. And Paul says in in Galatians 3 that the law was added, and the law he's speaking of specifically was the Ten Commandments. And people go, no, no, they're the eternal law. Really? Did Satan sin in heaven? Did, say, did Lucifer sin in heaven? Yes. Okay. Did he sin in heaven? Yes, he did. And sin is transgression of the law, right? Breaking the law. Was there a law in heaven that angels should honor their mothers and fathers? They don't have mothers and fathers. Were there laws that they should not commit adultery? Well, they don't marry or give in marriage, according to Jesus. Was there a law that their sins would pass down three and four generations, as it says in the uh, commandment? Well, no, they don't have children, so they don't have sins passing down three and four generations. Was there even a Sabbath law? Since we measure the Sabbath by this earth rotating in relation to that sun, and that sun wasn't created until day four of creation week of this planet, so that sun didn't exist yet, so there couldn't have been a Sabbath yet. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't Sabbath was made for angels. So the Ten Commandments were not in existence when Lucifer fell. They were added. They were added for specifically sinful human beings to meet our, our, our need. Our need for what? To diagnose where the law 
is, I, I would not know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. The law shows me what's wrong. It's like an MRI of the soul. God gave it to show us there's something sick in us or something wrong with us. But MRIs do not heal people. They only diagnose people. And so the whole written law was given, but the law, the whole written law is based on the eternal law that's always been in existence. And the eternal law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the first four commandments are all about love for God and love your neighbor as yourself. The last six are all about love for, for others. And that's the eternal law. And when Satan began to lie about Christ and lie about the Father in heaven, he is bearing false witness, which is breaking the law of love based on his own pride and selfishness. And this is the problem. His motives changed, and that's the real issue. So the standard, God's eternal law of love emanating from his character of love. Yes? So the, the commandments, I thought, existed, at least the law, before the Ten Commandments on Sinai, though, because at least they, they knew about the Sabbath, and surely they knew they shouldn't steal and, and things like that. So where, where, where's that? I'm disconnected there. So the law of love was already in existence. The principles of God were in existence. The Sabbath was created for man in Eden before there was a fall, but there wasn't a Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, six days should labor and do all they work and blah, 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 blah. Think of what they did on Sabbath. In Genesis 2, 3, though, they, they created it and made it holy. Right. So the Sabbath was created, but there wasn't a rule to keep Sabbath. And Think about the kinds of things they did on Sabbath in Eden. They walked with God. Yeah, they walked in a garden. They were spot, stopped, stopped doing their work. What kind of work were they doing? Were they weeding? Weeding? Weeding on, in, their, in their gardens? And did they have work? To, when they had to stop their work. What kind of work did they have to do? Harvesting. Made the animals. Did they need to harvest? What would happen if they didn't harvest? Would they have an overabundance? Would the, would the crops die and fail? Like what happens? We have to harvest because things go bad if we don't harvest. Did they have to harvest? Did they have to store up in barns? No. Did they have to weed weeds? No. I mean, think, think of the stuff that we call work. They had none of it to do. Hmm. Yeah, their job was to tend the garden. Tend, yes. But there was really not what we would call labor or work. All of this came post-fall. Okay? So we have these ideas that we breed in because the Sabbath was given. But what was the Sabbath given for? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Gymnasiums are made for people. People are not made for gymnasiums. <laughs> no, it's the same principle. God created the Sabbath as a gift to humanity for a purpose in the context of a war that already began in heaven over the breach of his law. But the breach of this law that happened in heaven did not happen over a Sabbath. It didn't exist yet. But because of the war, God gave us a special gift to help us in this war, and that gift was the Sabbath, to help us. Like if we have special weakness and we create gyms to help people stay strong, those gyms are not, well, they, they all are in sin because they didn't exercise at the gym. No, they didn't need a gym. But the gyms needed, now we have certain weaknesses, we need to go exercise to maintain our strength. The Sabbath is given for a particular type of exercise. You might even call the Sabbath is given for a particular type of work. It was so we could exercise our rest in Christ, in God. You understand, it, it's a certain form of exercise to s surrender and trust. Yes. Wasn't there an establishment of the Sabbath before sin? Not before sin in the universe. Before sin on earth. Before sin on earth, yeah. yes. Before Adam and Eve sinned, yes. Not before Lucifer sinned. So sin is already, the great controversy is already in play when the Sabbath comes into existence. There's already a rift in the family. And that happened before Adam and Eve were created. Well, the Sabbath was made for man. That's right. But sin's in the universe. So it didn't happen before sin. It happened before Adam and Eve sinned, but not before sin. And so it was given as a gift to Adam and Eve in the context of a war going on over whether they could trust God. And so you would have to ask the question, in the context of God being assaulted in his reputation, because this was not a physical battle, as a created being can't have a physical battle with the creator. Lucifer didn't say, I'm more powerful than God. I challenge him to an arm wrestling contest for all the might, for all the wealth of heaven. It didn't happen. It was never a battle of might. As, as Ellen White says, that God could have destroyed Satan and all sympathizers as easily as we cast a pebble to the ground. Think through the metaphor of that. When you cast a pebble to the ground, what causes it to fall? Gravity. Design law. If God would have simply let go, let go, and let them have, just let go, he's still holding them up. Get your mind around it. He's still holding them in his hand, even though they're in rebellion. But if he lets go, they fall, fall into non-existence. 
And all he had to do was just cease and let him have what they, but if God, and she describes this, if, she would, if he would have ceased his sustaining power in the rebel's life, where do they go? Non-existence, they die. But what happens in a universe that's never seen death in the context of a, of a war in which the rebel says, if you don't do what God says, he'll kill you. And they've never seen death. They don't know why it comes. The allegation is, if we don't do what he says, he'll kill us. God simply stomps his, his sustaining hand, lets them die. What's the rest of the universe think? He just killed them. And what happens to the rebellion? What happens to the fear? And trust, that's right. So, so Satan might be destroyed, but the, reb, the seeds of his rebellion spread through the rest of the universe. And sin isn't destroyed. And God is not interested in, in merely destroying Satan. In fact, he would prefer not to destroy Satan. He never wanted to destroy Satan in the first place. He loves him. It's exactly right. What's he want to destroy? Sin, rebellion, fear, selfishness. That's what he wants to destroy. Satan has solidified himself in it. No truth, no love will have any impact on Satan and his followers anymore. But he has to handle it in such a way that when he does finally stop using his sustaining power, when he simply lets go for them to reap what they've chosen and they cease to exist, that everybody who's saved knows that God didn't do it to him. He's not the source of death, which is the exact opposite of what Christianity teaches that, and, and that at the end of the thousand years, God will have a tribunal and he will hold everybody accountable and he will use power to torture and kill them which only spreads more fear and sin. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are absolutely trustworthy. Amen. You are love, you are truth. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be poured out into our hearts and minds. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done, for what you've procured for us, what you've revealed to us. You have won us to trust now. Now perfect us into the loyalty to you that nothing can shake us from it. We might have questions. There might be things we don't understand, but we understand that you are trustworthy. We pray that at this time in history, you will empower us to be more effective in sharing this message that will free hearts and minds from, from the fear and self-centeredness that this world offers, the false systems and the lies that have been told about you and that you might come soon and we will meet you face to face and get those hardware upgrades you promised. We pray in your holy name, amen. amen.